0: I'm John Panther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you Behind the Music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Nicole Lacroix, and we're talking all about Florence Price's Symphony No. 1, the first work of an African-American woman to be played by a major U.S. orchestra. There is a lot to get into, from hidden motifs to listen for as the music develops, her use of orchestration and sense of rhythm, a specific dance she includes in every symphony, and more. Florence Price completed her Symphony Number 1 in 1932, and a problem I think every composer has had is just finding time to compose. But, Nicole, it sounds like Price did find some time to focus on the symphony, but probably not in the way she had planned.
1: She said, I found it possible to snatch a few precious days in the month of January in which to write undisturbed. But, oh, dear me, when shall I ever be so fortunate again? as to break a foot. And you know, John, as a mother of three kids, I completely understand where she's coming from. I used to think, well, if I could just get the flu for a couple days, I might have time for myself. So I understand. (laughs) She had two little girls to raise on her own, and uh, she needed that undisturbed time. And
0: she was also, around this time, early 1930s, things were financially not going well. She was living with one of her students, of course, great composer Margaret Bonds, working as an organist for silent films and so on. I mean, it's hard to imagine for us normal people, non-composers, breaking your foot can sometimes be this blessing of undisturbed uh, time to compose. Just think of Bach trying to write with all those kids running around in a small flat or Bernstein with his traveling and conducting schedule. They take these composers whatever time they can get.
1: And when you say normal people like us, That was really reinforced when I read about Florence Price. She was not, quote, unquote, normal. She was a real genius. And the amount of work she did, over 300 compositions that we know of, you know, ending school at 14, going to conservatory at 15, uh, being a double major at, at your school, at the conservatory, it's unbelievable. And I think when we listen to this symphony, number one, we're going to have to keep in mind the fact that she is a major intellect.
0: Oh, yes. And if you did not listen to our episode on Florence Price, episode number 37, I highly recommend checking that one out after listening to this one. So Florence Price wrote this symphony in early 1932, some of it on that rest from A Broken Foot. And there was a competition that was announced in the Chicago Defender, a historically important and still around today African-American newspaper. And it was described as an event of paramount importance open to all musical composers of the race. That's how it was announced. And it was co-sponsored by the National Association of Negro Musicians and Wanamaker's Department Store. I'm thinking that I'm saying that name right, Wanamaker's? Yeah. So she wins this competition, right? And she earns $500, which today is about $14,000. After hearing the symphony, it's definitely worth a lot more than that. But then it was subsequently played, wasn't it, by the Chicago Symphony in the following year, 1933.
1: What I find interesting, not to in any way take away from her achievement, is the fact that it was performed for a concert at the Chicago World's Fair. It was an evening dedicated to African-American music, the culmination of quote-unquote Negro Day, and the concert was billed as The Negro in Music. But this was such an important event. You have an all-white orchestra of men playing the music of this African-American woman, and... Luminaries were in the audience. Gershwin, Adley Stevenson, and his wife flew in from D.C., and even President Roosevelt sent his greetings.
0: So let's jump into the music, the first movement. It opens beautifully with this line in the bassoon and then a kind of response in the oboe and clarinets. You immediately get this sense of a story being told in the introduction.
1: Jan Swafford, who is the biographer of uh, Brahms and also Beethoven, had something that was very interesting to me. He said that Beethoven achieved unity in a four-movement symphony with all sorts of different uh, contexts and textures and so forth by imagining a story to himself, not anything that he shared. And this quality is sort of a rare quality in composers, but it's immediately felt between between the composer and the audience or the listener. You understand that this is a whole, not just four separate pieces. And this is the impression that I get from listening to Florence Price's Symphony Number no. 1. Immediately.
0: Oh, yes. It's immediate because sometimes, well, a lot of symphonies, they start with an introduction, and it's kind of like, okay, you know, this is to get everyone quiet and... Um... When does the music start? And here from the beginning, it's immediately kind of grabbing you and pulling you into this story, this really kind of grand E minor sound leads to some huge, big moments and a lot of use of um, pentatonic scales in the melodies, just five notes instead of seven notes in a a full scale, including the eighth note, the octave, uh, if you want to count that. And that gives it this also folk sounding quality as that pentatonic sound is found in Um, Pretty much every culture across uh, the world, independently, this kind of came up, leads to some huge, towering moments in the opening, but then suddenly the orchestra drops out, and we have this flute solo, almost just kind of looking around, and it goes seamlessly to oboe and then to clarinet, and I bring this up because this was not easy. It could not have been easy to write, because the timbres of these instruments are so different, but the transitions between them are so smooth, and they play... They don't even generate notes in the same way. A flute you blow over the tone hole. Oboe has a double reed. Clarinet has a single reed. So they sound so different. But she has found a few common notes in just the right registers, high or low, where they can seamlessly go in between each other, and it makes this kind of—it's not just three instruments, but one extended instrument.
1: She was a virtuoso organist, and I think if you remember that when you listen to this. It shows her her wonderful use of color and texture and orchestration. When I listen to the first movement, I feel this grand sense of America unfolding in front of me. And here again, you know, the personal experience of the composer. She lived in Chicago. I remember driving from Chicago to Iowa, with three hours of nothing but flat lands and cornfields. And I have that same feeling with the opening of the symphony, just, you know, all the way up to the horizon, nothing but America
0: ah, and the hope
1: of America.
0: That's right. You see such a huge expanse at once. It's kind of eerie the first time uh, you see something like that.
1: And that's what I hear, especially, you know, those two wonderful themes that she opens with.
0: And speaking of themes, there's a kind of theme within a theme in in these um, opening sections and really in the whole movement. And that is an emphasis on a particular rhythm in the themes. We have two sixteenth notes followed by a long note, this particular rhythm. That's basically two short notes and then a long note. And if you listen to the recent Dvorak cello concerto episode, this idea should sound familiar to you. By having such a simple motif that is emphasized in these various themes, it can then be extracted, combined, and manipulated into many different moods and ideas. It's genius how she does it, because sometimes it's just hidden in the melody. And sometimes it's an entire section of an orchestra repeating it and building tension and getting louder. Sometimes she simplifies the rhythm by making it an eighth note followed by a long note, so a shorter note with a longer note. And you don't need to know music or, or read music to to hear this, because basically instead of arriving on a big downbeat where you have a note that you're expecting, a nice resolution, she has that note come in on the offbeat, so it's delaying this expected resolution. It gives it a very forward-moving feeling in the music, and then very cleverly you hear sometimes she uses that sustained note that's delayed as a note that leads into the next line. So it's always just kind of pushing forward.
1: And at the end of the movement, you're humming that particular theme.
0: Oh, yeah. It, it's, it sticks with you. Um, mm-hmm. And you hear it in many different ways. Sometimes it's in a section. Sometimes it's in a melody. Sometimes it's in the timpani. You hear like a heartbeat just beating away this two short notes and then... Um, and then a long note. And you hear that permeated in different ways through this movement. And it it, it kind of unifies everything because they're from different themes even.
1: It also has a a cyclical nature to it Mm -hmm. so that it really, you know, by the end of the movement, as I said, it's really ingrained in your brain, which is a great thing because it's not just something that passes you by.
0: (laughs) Towards the end of the first movement, there's a great demonstration, I think, of how this little motif can be used. It can be changed around. It can be passed around in various sections of the orchestra. So I want to play something here. And this is to help us improve our listening skills. If you don't hear it the first time, that's totally fine. But try to listen for it and maybe repeat it. And the more you do that, the more you kind of listen for some of the smaller things, the easier it gets. Your listening skills improve. So I'm going to play something. Focus on that rhythmic motif that we were just describing. And try to catch for when it gets passed around from one instrument to the next. This is a very quick transition in the music. So we'll hear it across bassoon, oboe, flute, clarinet, and strings underneath. like all these little lines popping out. I'm thinking of that description you were giving earlier of seeing this large flat expanse and all these notes or lines are singing out. And it's such a quick transition, but the way she uses that rhythmic motif is just beautiful.
1: And, you know, it's almost pastoral uh, Mm -hmm. because they're, they're little, the flutes, we were talking about the flutes earlier, but they're like little birds here and there. So again, it's that feeling of being out in the country, maybe the wind blowing, you know, the theme back and forth and the little birds coming. It's just kind of glorious, really.
0: I was wondering, Nicole, how soon in this podcast would you be bringing up birds? Because there's so many (laughs) bird-like moments in this, aren't there?
1: There really are. So I I think that makes it a pastoral movement, right? Yes.
0: (laughs) There is something else in this movement uh, towards the end that is so striking. she suddenly gives us this glistening, glittering, kind of shimmering, like if you have some water rippling and the sun reflecting off of it. She gives this atmosphere to the music suddenly by having the violins in a bit of the upper register playing triplets against the rest of the orchestra. So they're playing three notes in a beat. And so far, everyone's been playing two notes in a beat, basically, and. It elevates the whole sound to think of another composer. It sounds suddenly very Wagner-esque. Um, it's just very striking in how she does it. And what's interesting is that we don't hear any triplets like this in the movement until now, in the final couple minutes of the movement. This is not something you find in, in Mozart. We're now in the 20th century, and she can, towards the end here, include some material that we've not heard before. She's um, She has that liberty and what this does is these rhythms don't quite fit together and so it's this murmuring sound in the strings so the notes don't line up perfectly if you take if you take a pencil and looking at the a little bit before this in the symphony and you draw a line down on on the notes they're all kind of going to line up with each other these lines but if we do that here in this section there's lines in between the lines. It doesn't fit quite together. and It just gives this striking quality that is um, quite unexpected.
1: It's almost as if the Mississippi River has suddenly started flowing through our our vast uh, cornfields. <laughs> uh,
0: again, that's a beautiful description because this is often used to depict something like water. Think of the Maldau, for instance, mm-hmm. and other works that, that do this. Just absolutely beautiful. I love this movement. It's also, I think, the the biggest movement in the symphony as well.
1: Right. I think that at this point, in 1932, she was writing this. It's the Depression. Uh, I guess they've come through the worst of the Depression. But think of all the American composers who are writing about America, about the big vision. Things like... um, Copeland or Oklahoma or the the ballets, the painters, mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know, American Gothic and uh, that sort of thing. Georgia O'Keefe, they're celebrating the land and they're celebrating the idea of having an American art form. It's also the time of the Harlem Renaissance and the Chicago art explosion too. And poetry and culture of all kinds are are really – as I said, celebrating America, and I think that this, especially this first—well, no—the the whole symphony is an example of that. That that yearning, that realizing things aren't perfect. You know, we have hard times, but we have hope for the future.
0: That's a key word that I'm hearing, and that, and that is hope. And that brings us to the second movement, where this is personally my favorite movement of the symphony. Because, of course, it opens with this beautiful hymn in the brass. But for me, it's especially my favorite because it kind of changes our expectations of what a slow second movement in a symphony can be. So it starts with this beautiful, proud, hopeful hymn, like this slow march just moving forward. And in the score, and you're hearing it too, there's some percussion instruments as well. These are hand percussion instruments. They're not um, hit with drumsticks. She writes for a large African drum and a small African drum. And this movement, you know, you hear a second movement in a symphony, you expect something tranquil, something slow, something, you know, nice and beautiful. And she's doing that here, but in a way you've I've not heard before. And it just, it changes the whole idea of a second movement for me.
1: And the idea that She is writing what she knows. You know, when when you write something, a novel or whatever, they tell you, write what you know. This is what she's doing. She is trained in the classical tradition, and yet she wants to express herself. What better expression than to portray a church, an African-American church, with a hymn that she has written herself. It's not something that she has taken and and improvised on, this is something she's written, but it expresses so much of of life, from joy and spirituality to pain and and the troubles that people have gone through. and again, the hope of spirituality
0: hope. And that rhythmic motif that we listen to in the opening movement, that's back here in the second movement. but, it is placed slightly differently in the beat. It's placed in a slightly different place in the beat, and it changes it completely. So before we had those 16th notes on the downbeat, da-da-dam, the short notes, da-da-dam. Now we have the short notes leading into the longer note, which is on the downbeat. So it's happening a little bit earlier. So we no longer have that delay of the resolution of that, of that final note. And it gives it a completely different feeling. It's less forward moving. It's more in the moment, but it's here as well. And it's just so beautiful.
1: The brass choir, and this is why I think one of the reasons you like it so well as a tuba player, it consists of French horns, trumpets, trombones, and tubas, and then, as you said, the African drums, the timpani, church bells, just in case we forgot where we are in a, in a church.
0: <laughs> and it's just one tuba, but the tuba's written a little higher. It's in the middle register. It's not super low, and it just works perfectly. And in this movement, Nicole, which is already different and so beautiful of of a second movement in a symphony, there is this sudden moment that is almost, I don't know where it's coming from exactly, but it's like a Bach organ fantasy has, her in her own way, brought in with the um, strings. So striking. And then a moment later, as it resolves, it's completely different. It sounds like, to me, this butterfly is... You know, going up and up, higher and higher and higher, you know, fluttering as hard as it can to get to the top of some building. And then it finally lands and then it stretches its wings in the sun. That gets me every time.
1: Well, she was an organist, so she had to have a little toccata stuck in there, right?
0: Yes, that's exactly. (laughs) I'm hearing more now, as you've been talking about in Nicole, this organ kind of influence in the music as well. That's such a beautiful moment for me.
1: It is, and it also sort of emotionally, and that's one thing about this, um, another thing about this symphony is that it is very emotional. It talks to our feelings, and so... I I think we react to these great moments on that emotional level. It's almost as if she's saying, y- "You've been through a hard time. You know, it's it's been difficult. We, as human beings, we are we have problems, but we you've come to the right place and you are going to be saved." It, it, it's almost that feeling when I hear that.
0: And I think that's even emphasized what you're describing towards the end because it sounded so far, it's very proud, it's very mannered, but then it gets very sentimental and very touching, almost heartwarming. The way she's orchestrating the end it's just, uh, it's so touching. I love it. And we'll get into the third movement right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. Now we get into the third movement, that is called Juba dance. And Juba is a dance that she includes in all of her symphonies. And it was a dance that was brought by enslaved Africans from Congo to Charleston, South Carolina. But drums were banned out of fear that enslaved people would hide secret messages in the drumming, so drums were banned. And the Juba dance uses the hands and body parts like the chest, thighs and legs as the percussion instruments and this was a dance that was also used to release emotions, frustration and anger. I'll put a video on the show notes page about juba, but to semi-quote uh, the musician from that video, Sule Greg Wilson, he said that they understood that holding on to hate is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die and juba was a part of just getting that out. And so you'll hear in this dance some different percussion instruments. We have the timpani uh, in the background, but we'll hear those hand percussion instruments that we heard in the second movement, the large and the um, small African drum into the, uh, into the dance.
1: You know, John, I remember when I was a kid, I uh, lived in Cote d'Ivoire. West Africa for a couple of years. And every once in a while, street dancers would come to our development with the drums, and they would just, for half an hour or so, just play and dance. And it was a real celebration. That's what I see when I hear this movement.
0: It sounds like a bustling town square, doesn't it? Lots of syncopation. This is used in a way that pushes the music forward in a more kind of longer, extended way compared to just that simple rhythmic motif in the first movement. So it's it doesn't sound like you're tripping over yourself, but it's that effect where you kind of, you know, you're you walking and you trip, but it takes you
1: 20 feet to fall. Um, you have that kind of momentum in the music. And I love the way she uses a slide whistle. Is This is a very humorous, fun, everybody's just letting their joy hang out. This is Americana at its best.
0: And that brings us to the fourth movement, which is rather short. The juba dance is shorter. That's something you expect, um, especially in a symphony, a dance third movement that is only several minutes long. The fourth movement is just a little bit longer, and it is, it's is—it's quite extraordinary what she's doing here because it, at first it sounds so simple. It sounds like a nice dance or jig like Allegro but she's doing things that are extraordinary, but kind of hidden in plain sight. It starts off with triplets. These triplets are back that we heard in the first movement, but of course, very different. Uh, This is everyone together in this kind of dance.
1: When I heard this, and it's a sort of a perpetual movement kind of uh, feeling, to me, we went from the wide open spaces of America and the countryside to the bustling city of Chicago and people rushing here and there in modern life. To me, that's what I heard.
0: And it has this contrasting middle section, and this this movement, it really speaks for itself. There's not much to describe, except there's this extraordinary transition where she's bringing in material from previous movements. Remember that Bach organ fantasy-like uh, writing in the second movement? She brings that back as a way to transition from this dance to some of the material from the first movement that big E minor sound from the first movement because this is the end of the symphony and it's normal to bring this material back and that elevates the whole thing and gives the transition that much more impact.
1: It really is, to me, like she transitioned from the pastoral opening, and then we went to church, and then we had a lot of fun uh, at the Hoedown uh, uh, Juba Dance, and then now it's back to city life, bustling, modern, in those times, Chicago, with the L and and the wind and everybody just running off in their own business. And that's what I hear. <laughs>
0: It's amazing how she does this, right? Because this is a dance that's very complete, has a nice beginning, middle, and end. So it's harder to get out of that and into, into um, something else. And she's doing that here brilliantly with material from other movements. And then as you're describing in just the, the feeling of it too, you know, where am I right now in this symphony or where am I? Am I in Chicago or am I in a more pastoral landscape? And she does that here.
1: And she, if you think back, the whole symphony is really related to the dance. You know, just like a a Bach suite is all about the dance. There's all sorts of different rhythms throughout, and she she manipulates them throughout the symphony uh, in a in a wonderful way. And that's a key
0: takeaway. We've said it a lot, and you were just talking, Nicole. Rhythm. She has an extraordinary sense and control over rhythm. You can write a beautiful line, but if you don't have the rhythm which glues us, which which drags us into the music and holds on to us, if the rhythm isn't there, if that feeling isn't there, then it tends to fall flat. We've all heard, you know, beautiful lines that don't seem to go anywhere because they don't have the um rhythm and the sense of timing of going from one note to the next or from the beginning of a line to the end. And that's what Florence Price has. And the end is it's fast and it's driving and a big shout out to symbol uh, players everywhere, especially this <laughs> one, because symbols, they're way harder than people realize. It is not just smashing two pieces of metal together at all. It's very difficult. So speeding up and staying in time, that's difficult writing she's putting in there. And then at the end, kind of rubbing the symbols together quickly, you know, very... It's not just a big crash. That happens at the end. But the way she writes that to kind of roll on itself is, um, yeah, that wasn't easy. Could
1: not have been easy. I was jogging to the juba and the propulsion in that is visceral. And actually, there is a visceral aspect to every single movement in this symphony. And that underscores what you're talking about, the idea of rhythm. We feel it, just like we feel, you know, an organ pipe vibrating through us. Mm. You have that one-on-one communication between the composer and the listener. And I think that's quite, a, quite rare. <laughs> it is. And that's
0: Florence Price's first symphony. And believe it or not, I believe it's also one of her first large-scale orchestral works, which is um, OK. That's incredible. But unfortunately, this symphony was not performed much in her lifetime. Uh, so I highly recommend listening to episode number 37 on Florence Price, where you will hear reasons why and readings of letters of that Price wrote to conductors asking for her music to be played. Uh, they're read by Dr. Karen Walwyn in that episode. So I highly recommend checking that one out as well. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. Do you have anything else for Price's Symphony Number 1?
1: Well, this is uh, from a review in Vulture of a performance by the Philadelphia Orchestra of this symphony, and the writer says, There is a belief in American perfectibility in the middle of the Depression. The conviction that the country was more than the sum of its faults. That attitude, says the writer, couldn't be more timely, and I agree.
0: Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. You can find more information about this episode and links to recordings on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. If you have any comments or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical.